0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we take a closer look at the world of fixed income. With ever falling interest rates and the scarcity of attractive yields on bonds, we talk about what investors should know about today's bond markets. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Jean Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation, and Sabina Raza, Investment specialist. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. And as usual, there seems to be plenty to cover. Today, I'm joined by John Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation, and by Sabina Raza, our Fund Manager in Fund Selection. And today, we're going to focus on the world of fixed income, where Sabina is our resident expert. Uh, we're going to cover the latest development in bond markets. I know some people don't tend to get particularly excited about bond markets, can't think why, but In this environment where interest rates are dropping ever lower and any form of attractive yield or income on debt is becoming scarcer and scarcer, I think there's plenty of us to think about and talk about, and plenty of questions to cover in today's episode. So let's start, as we always do, with a bit of a, a, an update on what's been going on in the world of finance. Um, thinking about the headlines that you will have seen, as well as as well as us. So JP, what's what's the latest that you're seeing and hearing?
1: Hello, Nikki. Yes, there are a couple of developments that that are noteworthy here. So so first of all, if we look to the coronavirus, we see that. Cases continue to rise in Europe after the holiday season and where we see some countries reimposing uh, more measures to contain it. Uh, we see it's done more localized than previously. If you look closer to home to the UK economy, we see this week we got more data on the UK unemployment report. Uh, so we see that headline unemployment uh, etching up a little bit higher, to just over 4%. And in terms of actual jobs lost, we now see that almost 700,000 less workers on payroll since March. Uh, But as we've discussed before, the true state of the UK labor market is unlikely to be known until after the furlough scheme ends uh, in in the end of October. So it's worth bearing that in mind. If we look closer to interest rates, the topic for today, then we see that recently we had the ECB uh, communicating that they left uh, interest rates unchanged, It was, uh, in that sense, uh, predictable, but they indicated that uh, more could be done if needed. And Wednesday evening we had the US Federal Reserve indicating that it will keep interest rates close to zero for at least until 2023. And would be looking to full employment and willing to let inflation run a little bit hot before even thinking about increasing interest rates. Then in terms of policy, we still see a stalemate between the Republicans and Democrats in the US over the latest fiscal stimulus package. And there are now yeah some slight concerns this won't be passed before the November elections.
0: And anything around the sort of currency markets have we seen that reflected there?
1: Um, so what we've seen is, is is a little bit in particular if if we look to sterling we see some some swings based on headlines. So we've had yeah. the uh, the yeah the. the Developments in in Westminster, uh, yeah, putting some pressure on sterling.
0: Cool. So, so it sounds like you know plenty, plenty to keep you and the asset allocation team and uh, our fund managers quite quite busy from the sound of it. But in terms of asset allocation and and our client portfolios, the team has actually been quite unusually active in in fixed income this year. I'd say. Can can you perhaps tell us a bit about what has been done and, and why those moves have been made, JP?
1: Yes, absolutely. So so I'm sure we'll cover in this postcard the various forms of fixed income in more detail, but as, as a high-level summary um, in March and April, when financial markets have fallen significantly, and, and remember, these were unprecedented peacetime lockdown measures being imposed, and we saw that healthcare systems are very, very strained. Uh, we did see in particular that the higher uh, risk bonds, so so higher up in the, in the risk spectrum, so those are the bonds that uh, could default over time or could, companies could seize business, uh, those bonds became quite cheap. And at that moment, we bought more in our client portfolios uh, of those higher risk bonds, as we felt a lot has been discounted at that moment.
0: Yeah, okay, so that, that's clear. So perfect opportunity to get Sabina's insights as our as our expert here, focusing on on fixed income uh, managers. So Sabina, can you just for our listeners, um, help us understand what, what actually is a high yield bond and what have you seen happening in this space? Hello, Nikki. Yes, of course. When we look at bonds issued by corporates, we can broadly
2: categorise them based on their level of risk. So, for example, the more safe bonds, if you will, are classified as investment grade. Now, these tend to be rated AAA to BBB by rating agencies such as S&P and Moody's. These bonds are considered to have a relatively low risk of default, i.e. the company or the issuer not being able to pay back their bondholders. And examples of these credits include Microsoft and Apple. Mm-hmm. Now, JP mentioned high yield bonds. These are companies rated below triple B, all the way down to single C. And unlike investment grade credits, they are seen to carry higher risk and therefore offer investors a high yield to compensate for the greater risk. And examples of these companies include Netflix and Ford. Now, in some cases like Ford, these are companies that were once rated investment grade, but were downgraded to high yield and are now known as fallen angels. Companies that are upgraded from high yield back to investment grade are known as rising stars. As we've already discussed, there has been a lot happening in the markets given the unprecedented support from central banks. We have also had the Fed buying investment grade corporate bonds and also buying companies that became fallen angels for March 22nd of this year. In addition to this, the Fed has also bought high-yield ETFs alongside investment grade ETFs, which has provided further support for the high-yield market. And therefore, what we have seen this year has been a record level of new issuance from both investment grade and high-yield companies.
0: So it sounds like we're we're after the rising stars, and, and I'm sure that's where you and the team come in. Um, so so JP, the team bought more. Of the sort of riskier profile of bonds when, when they were cheap, how do you determine what's cheap? And, and if it's a simple sort of construct, isn't everyone doing the
1: same thing? Well, that's, that's, that's an excellent question, Nicky. And, and, and unfortunately, it's not that easy. It, there is no one single measure or lens that we can use to say, well, an asset or a financial instrument is cheap or expensive. So we have to look at a range of, of measures. Uh, what we do know with, with, with especially assets like, like high yield bonds is that we do know some of, a, of defaults can occur and that's exactly why you get getting higher interest rates on these bonds if you invest in these. What we also do know is that the defaults tend to occur in times when there is a financial or uh, an economic recession. So we look at a range of measures. Uh, one of our favorite, for example, in the team is to look at a measure where we look at what's the yield on offer for investors. So what's the interest rate I receive of investing in those bonds. And what you then can calculate is what is the number of defaults that would need to occur to wipe out that uh, that the gain uh, of, of that interest rate. So in, in essence, you calculate what would be your break even if you would account for defaults. Well, what we did see earlier in March on, on a number of these measures where you did receive as an investor, you did receive a 10% um, interest rates over government bonds to compensate you for the risk in, in these bonds. We did see actually that that the default levels that were that were need to occur to wipe out that would be closer to 15%, which for us at that moment, it was worthwhile to start investing in client portfolios. But remember, yeah, it this seemed to seem
0: too th- much, right?
1: Yeah, it seemed too much. But remember, this is not yeah. easy. This is a time when panic is about, when everyone is worried about the travel sector, about the retail sector, yeah. energy, uh, and a lot of defaults uh, that, that could occur. So it's difficult in these times of panic to buy for clients. Yeah, hard to keep a cool head, right? So Yes. Um, yes.
0: And, and, just, and just thinking back to that, I mean, um, Sabina, obviously you're much closer to the ground as far as Talking to fund managers in this space, any any observations from from them or indeed your own your own thoughts?
2: Of course. So, what we saw sort of during late February March period that it had become very difficult to trade, i.e., buy and sell bonds in these markets. What we often refer to as liquidity drying up, or an illiquid yeah. market. Now, this can be partly explained by the majority of traders and dealers who help facilitate these transactions working from home, just like the rest of us. However, mm-hmm. In their case, some of them were lacking access to the full set of logistics that they normally have access to in the office. So, for example, multiple screens and phone lines. So this did, in some cases, impair or um, was detrimental to to going ahead and um, processing some of these transactions. But also, given the uncertainty in the markets, it was also difficult to find a corresponding buyer to a sell trade, People were still new to the idea of the pandemic, how bad it could become. So therefore, if you were, even if you were trying to, to sell at a very low price, there might not be a buyer on the other side. So however, with global central banks coming to the rescue, providing supportive policies, along with institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund or IMF, also offering support to vulnerable emerging market countries, which we will cover later, the environment started to change, what we saw, Nikki, was that given the sharp sell-off, investors actually started to look for bargains and companies started to slowly come to the market to issue new bonds. Now, the first companies to do so were the investment grade names, i.e. the higher quality ones, and they were soon followed by high-yield companies. And what we, what we saw is that the proceeds from the new issuance was used really to buy back bonds that the companies had previously issued at a much higher coupon, or i.e. the payments that a bondholder receives from investing in the company as the rates had fallen significantly following central bank action and the proceeds were also used to raise cash for the company. Now, what was interesting is that demand from investors was incredibly high and the new supply of debt was more than welcomed. Now, what's even more interesting, Nikki, is that there was strong demand from companies that are more exposed to the virus such as cruise ships with carnival cruises and royal caribbean coming and issuing new debt and oftentimes the subscription levels for this debt being extremely high and the same Mm. for airlines such as delta so it just goes to show you that investors were actually looking
0: beyond the pandemic from what JP talked about what you talked about Sabina around um, firms coming um, and, and ostensibly firms that perhaps have been suffering more than most like you said cruise ship operators airlines etc, any information that you started to see around the actual default rate because of course you know it's it's somewhat implied in in the yields or, or the income level that that these firms have to offer in order to attract. People to buy their bonds, but clearly, what what we then want to sort of uh, weigh that up against, as per JP's explanation earlier, is well, then what actually comes to fruition? Are you able to share any insights about what what in reality has been happening? Well,
2: there've been many articles about defaults picking up, and we can also see that through some of the, the names that have defaulted. But largely what we've seen over the past year or so is that the majority of defaults have been in the oil and gas sector, which has suffered from falling oil prices. Now, the sectors also suffered from lockdowns and falling demand for petrol as more and more people are working from home and also mm-hmm. for air travel. And as a result, it has seen defaults and continues to remain vulnerable. Now, other sectors that JP mentioned, such as retail and leisure, have also been hit with the Fed reducing rates and thereby enabling many companies to refinance their debts at lower levels or retired debt that was due soon has also helped to lower the probability of default. However, as JP said earlier is a lot of this default news is already priced into the market, which means that investors are less likely to be faced with surprises. So it's no longer the case unless it's a fraud where something just kind of crops up overnight Generally, right. you will start to see a deterioration with regard to the company, the news flow that is coming out, etc., earnings and so forth. So it's already, you know, there are signs that this company is starting to look ill. And therefore, as a result of this, this is why we always say that when analysing a company, it's imperative that you really focus on the balance sheet and you have a strong understanding of how this company is structured, the amount of debt that it has outstanding and whether it has sufficient cash to service
0: this debt going forward and from what you say Sabina that sounds like a fairly continuous job right you know what what it looks like on on one day might look quite different you know 3 months later or 6 months later absolutely so so we've spoken quite a bit about the high yielding sort of more risky uh, range of bonds that are available to to investors but what about you know, what we perceive, hopefully, as safer sort of fixed income, uh, the investment grade, so the higher rated company debt or, or government bonds? What do you see happening
1: there? But when you look to investment grade bond, and that's just as, as, as Sabina explained, the more safer bonds, if you look to the, the spectrum of riskiness uh, of, iss- of debt issued by corporates, uh, we have been increasing those holdings in client portfolios in May, uh, as we felt there was quite a lot of, of policy support there. So that means that governments and central banks' uh, action is beneficial for for this uh, for these assets. But, but given the performance we've seen over the summer, we have reduced it again in, in August. It, it, over the summer, we've seen these assets return quite well. Well, what we now see is when we lowered these holdings in client portfolios, we actually increased the holdings in emerging market debt. Issued in U.S. dollars. So what we've seen is that if we look to the compensation on offer to investors in in these kind of fixed income instruments, we actually see that now emerging market debt is one of the the pockets where we still see value um, for for investors. They're still where, inclined portfolios, we own a little bit more of these bonds than we would otherwise do.
0: Okay, and and that sounds like an area. I mean, emerging markets is clearly you know we have Asian emerging markets, Latin America, European, etc., etc. That That sounds like quite a broad range to to try to analyse and and form views on. So, Sabina, can can you just help us? Where Where do you start?
2: Okay, well, there are a couple of points to make here. So, just in terms of getting an understanding of when we talk about emerging market debt, what exactly do we mean? When we look at emerging market debt, we focus mainly on debt issued by emerging market governments. In the case of hard currency or external debt, the governments will issue bonds outside... their their domestic or home currency. So this tends to be mainly in US dollars, but it can also include euro-denominated bonds as well. Now, in addition, Mm -hmm. there is also the local currency EM market, EM debt market. And in this example, the government would issue bonds in its domestic currency. So, for example, Mexico would issue bonds in Mexican peso. If Poland came to the market, it would issue in Zloty and so forth. Now, the external emerging market debt EMD market has been around since the early 1990s, having started off with mainly Latin American countries. This has now increased to over 70 countries in the index and is very well diversified with broad regional representation. And the local currency market has a much shorter history, having been around really as an asset class since sort of 2006- 2007, and this index also has fewer countries, 19 at present. Now, we spoke about defaults earlier with regards to investment grade and high-yield corporate credit. There have also been defaults in emerging market debt. Now, what we typically tend to see is that defaults are most likely to occur within external debt as countries run out of dollars to pay back investors. In local markets, the government can always print more money, so it tends to be less of an issue there. But then just going back to the point about defaults being well telegraphed in advance, this has also been the case with emerging markets. So more recently, we saw Argentina, Ecuador and Lebanon default. But again, investors were well informed ahead of these countries actually going into default.
0: So, given given the events that we've witnessed this year, from from talking to you both, JP and Sabina, it feels like the action has been mainly in the sort of riskier end of the fixed income spectrum. What about you know we'd we'd hope and expect would be the slightly more boring, predictable, safe government bonds, like you know, for example, UK gilts, so UK government issuance, or any any insight that you can give around. Uh, that area or
1: or indeed cash deposit rates Um, well indeed Nick yes you point out plenty plenty is going on and indeed most of of the action this year has been in at least for client portfolios has been in, in in the slightly more riskier riskier bonds but if we look to the more government bonds or just to the deposit cash rates there are a couple of points to make here is, is, first of all, generally we observe that interest rates are trending down. We see that the proportion of available bonds where you could get, a, say, 3 or 5% yield is actually decreasing quite sharply uh, over yeah. time. Actually, if you see a lot of bonds, we see negative interest rates. So let alone that it even covers the, the, the inflation. Um. So in client portfolios, we currently own less government bonds than we would otherwise do as we deem this asset class unattractive at the moment then if you look to cash deposits for example we see that most western central banks are close to the zero line so if we look to the u.s fed the bank of england in the uk or the ecb in europe they all are at zero interest rates and they have indicated they will stay at zero for quite some years to come Uh, even this week we had the fed pointing out that at least it will be until 2023 and they would be willing to accept uh, letting inflation run a little bit hot uh, so, so it, it seems here unlikely that central banks will increase cash deposit rates anytime soon
0: and and actually i mean i i was quite taken aback when i when i heard that policy announced um maybe maybe i'm misremembering but in my i don't know 28 year plus career i've i've not i've not heard that kind of I know I know three years isn't isn't long term right but but you know going going you know, putting their stake in the
1: ground quite to that extent is is that the case or, or am I misremembering JP Monetary policy has been evolving over over the decades and what we've seen is in the past there's right. much more they put up interest rates or they take down interest rates in order to support an economy. What we've seen now is, uh, in, in recent decade more and more is much more about managing expectations. so the way they communicate, is much more we won't do anything for X years or we expect inflation to pick up or come down. So it's much more what what in Jargon they would call the forward guidance in trying to manipulate expectations instead of really putting up or putting down interest rates. But that, that's a good observation. That has been one of the evolutions we see in, in, in terms of monetary policy.
0: Interesting. So they've had to evolve in the same way as every other market or or you know business or in fact you know human. Human interaction is. has had to evolve, hasn't it? So lots of food for thought there. And and just just to sort of bring it all together, you know, I think Sabina did a lovely job there of really explaining some of the complexity. I, I certainly feel like I've got a better handle on why diversification isn't just a sort of mantra that we should think about when it comes to uh, shares or equities. I think our listeners are probably well versed in that. But actually, I think what I'm hearing, especially from Sabina, is we need to think in the same way around bond exposure as well. These things behave very differently and things can move quite fast. Sabina, is that a fair summary or representation of where you would suggest our listeners should should go and think about uh, exposure to some of these areas? Absolutely. As we've witnessed this year, I mean,
2: we've had Q1, you know, sort of the March period where markets sort of shutting down, no activity at all. To the summer months and even August, which generally tends to be of you know quite a, a quiet period as you yeah. as people go on holiday, you know very strong issuance and strong demand as well. So at times, sort of insatiable. So, absolutely, I think you know there is strong demand, the supply is there. And as you mentioned, diversification is key, not just having exposure to maybe one part of the bonds market, but kind of really looking for opportunities across the spectrum, because, you know, you've got different types of credit ranging from safer companies to those that maybe carry higher risk to emerging market debt, you know, going into local currencies etc to playing the the dollar space and so forth so lots of opportunities there but one thing that we do really advocate is that we favor an active approach to investing because that enables you as I as I said earlier to really dig deep into the companies into the governments and really understand their structure and how they're likely to perform going forward because that is crucial that will help you avoid defaults and
0: hopefully not lose money. Perfect, sound sound sage advice there. So, so just to conclude, um, JP, just just give us a flavour right this moment. You know your 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 views, the team's views on on where we should be in fixed income and and how that actually translates into our more diversified client portfolios and funds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so in our diversified client portfolios, we, we still see U.S. high yields uh, bonds as as somewhat attractive, not to the extent as, as it was earlier this year. Remember, then, then investors could, could get an interest rate of closer to 10% in excess of what you would get on a government bond. That has come down a bit, uh, but we still think in, in, in a portfolio it makes sense to have own a bit more of those bonds. Uh, and, and we also feel in emerging market dollar debt, the interest on offer there for investors is, is still attractive. So those will be the areas where in, in client portfolios, we own a little bit more than what we would otherwise do. Uh, and in particular for developed market government bonds we own a little bit less Uh, at at the moment we don't see this as particularly attractive uh, investment for clients this this is in the context of diversified uh, client portfolio so so we still own a range of fixed income assets uh, as we do with equities and other asset classes for clients but where we see the particular attractiveness at the moment is mainly in US high yield and emerging market bonds where we own a little bit more than we would otherwise do.
0: That's super clear, brilliant. So so we've covered quite a lot today. Um, I feel like we may have hopefully busted a few myths here. Certainly, you know, I think conventional wisdom had it that the fixed income part of, of the asset allocation uh, universe is is the boring bit. It's it's there to be predictable and and to dampen risk and volatility or big movements in in values of of the assets. But but it sounds like. There's plenty going on, plenty to analyze, plenty for the teams to focus on. And it sounds to me like we're in, we're in safe hands there. So thank you very much, JP and Sabina. And thank you to all our listeners. Do please keep subscribing, keep sharing on, on social media and encouraging your friends and indeed any enemies to uh, subscribe as well. Speak next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.